Well, good morning. If you have a copy of the Word of God, we're going to be in John chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a little bit of uh, appreciation to you all for inviting me here this Lord's Day to come and present the Word of God to you. Uh, Ultimately, I don't want this to be seen as me giving my thoughts to you, but me simply proclaiming the Word of God. It is God who speaks these words. It's God who blesses the proclamation of His gospel. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit will bless our time here this morning. I'm going to begin, it's just three verses today, John chapter 19, beginning at verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, I'm sorry, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Let's uh, go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we behold these things that are in your holy word that you have delivered to us by way of revelation, we ask, Lord, that you would press these things upon our heart. We ask, Lord, that these would not be empty words, but that we would see these as the loving words of our Savior. Lord, help us to behold your Son upon the cross. Help us to understand what love he had for your church. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be among us, that he would convict us of sin and righteousness, and that we would be drawn with the fullness of our being closer to the Savior. And it's in His matchless and immaculate name that we pray. Amen. 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 So I want to say a few things by way of inspiration. Why did I choose today's text? Um, Part of it is, I just wanted to go straight to the gospel. I want us to remember the things that are of first importance. That Jesus died according to the scriptures, He was buried, and that He rose again for the forgiveness of sins. So I did want to bring us close to the gospel, as close to the cross as we can get, and there's no place close that we can get than a passage like this. Mm-hmm. And then there's maybe a little bit more of a carnal reason, which is I've been vexed every single day on the way to work and the way from work for the past month, just leading up to Christmas, and this hasn't changed since Christmas, there's been a billboard on the side of the road. And the best way I can compare this billboard is to spam email. Now, if Facebook were to email you, and say, hey, we want to verify your identity. Can you please send us your social security number so we know it's you who's connected to your account? And let's say that email also had a bunch of typos in it. You'd immediately know, okay, this is, this is fake, this is a, a spam bot, this is somebody who's trying to steal my identity. And you would know it because the substance doesn't feel right. Why would Facebook be asking for my social security number? And also by the form of the message. Facebook's a multi-billion dollar company. They're very professional. They're not going to have these kind of typos. So you know it's fake. Okay, so this billboard, you've got two things. First of all, the billboard, it says, Behold thy mother, and there's a picture of the Virgin Mary. Okay, well, you're you're pointing out a biblical verse. Jesus' dying words on the cross isn't, Hey, look away from me for a second, and remember to praise and worship my mother. Secondly, below the verse, it said John 25, 27. Now, if you turn over in your Bible, there's no John 25. <laughs> there's a typo in it. And so every day, going to and from work, and I'm seeing, you know, not only is this blasphemy telling us, hey, remember to worship Mary today, but it's also 
That's not even a verse in the Bible. And it's not just one billboard. There's several billboards in town. Somebody paid for this. Nobody proof-checked it at any point. And it's one of those things where I'm like, i got to preach this. <laughs> but I, I do want to say this isn't from a place of vindication. This is just one of those things where it's like, this verse has constantly been in my life, and it's also a great place to go to see the love of Jesus on the cross. Even before seeing this billboard, I did preach a variation of today's sermon um, before in a jail context to unbelievers. In considering the story of Christianity, when we consider Christianity as it's unfolded, both within the Holy Scripture and often throughout church history, there's often a great emphasis placed upon great men who have done great things for God. Abraham, Moses, Paul, and then throughout church history, we have Augustine, Luther, and all these men, you know, it's, it's right and well that we honor these guys. They have done great things through God. God has done great things through them. He's given them the Holy Spirit, and we expect the Holy Spirit to act throughout history. And it's also correct that these are men. God has righteously ordained that men ought to be leaders, especially in religious matters. However, we should also constantly remember that half of the church is comprised of women. And that there would be a gaping hole in the story of Christianity if the vital role of women were left untold. Mm. The Bible, in speaking of women, doesn't just throw a bone to them here and there and say, oh yeah, yeah, women are being in the image of God too. It's, it's not just that simple. I think sometimes we have a tendency to maybe present it that way. But God has given women a place of high honor. And when we consider today's text, we do know that there was other people present at the cross that were not named in today's text. We know that there was people on the crosses next to him. We know that there was a Roman who would pierce his side and feed him wine. But in terms of the names that are given, we are given the names of women. And it's interesting for us to note that it was faithful women who were among the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. And I don't think that there's any kind of mistake here. There are three women today who are mentioned in our passage. And I want to go kind of in the reverse order of how they're presented. So first of all, Mary Magdalene. In Luke chapter 8 and Mark chapter 16, we discover with Mary Magdalene that seven demons have been driven out of her. And out of a profound love for Jesus, who had granted her such a great deliverance, she stayed by his side until his dying hour. She remembered the work that he had done in her life, and she never forgot him. She never forsook him. Then we have the wife, the, the wife of uh, Cleophas, that Mary. She is identified here as being the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And really not much is, known, is known about her aside from this verse in the Bible. And even though it says sister here, this is probably best understood as being her sister-in-law. And I say that for three reasons. First of all, if you're a parent and you have two daughters, it'd be weird if you named them both the same name. <laughs> it, I mean, even, even in that context, it's, it's weird. Second of all, she's called the wife of Cleophas, which would be kind of an extraneous detail that doesn't really matter to the passage. I think that detail is put in there so that we can understand, okay, it's not the literal sister, but it's a sister-in-law. And third, sister-in-law is within the range of meaning for the Greek word for sister. But today I want to focus on Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yeah. Because that's the one that Jesus seems to point out the most in this passage. I think it'd be most expedient for us to uh, focus on her. So, 
because we're going to focus on her, when I say Mary from this point forward, just think Jesus' mother. I'm not going to keep specifying which Mary I'm talking about. It'd be too much uh, extra. So, I want to plan to divide my sermon today into three sections. First of all, who this Mary is. Secondly, how Mary sees Jesus. And thirdly, how Jesus sees Mary. So, first of all, who Mary is. When we consider who Mary is, we have to ask the question, do we as Protestants, as non-Catholics, do we have doctrines or a doctrine concerning Mary? Or is that too Roman Catholic? Are, are, we, are we, in speaking of our doctrines concerning Mary, are we acting too much like this billboard I was talking about? I think there's a sense in which we have to be careful using that kind of language. Oh, yes, we have Mary doctrine. But at the same time, we do have positive beliefs about Mary. She's in the Bible. You know, anytime we have a character in the Bible, we're going to have beliefs relating to that person. We have a theology of Abraham. He's the head of a covenant. We don't think he's divine in any sense. We don't think he's worthy of worship. But we do venerate him as a hero of the faith. And it's the same thing about Mary in a lot of ways. So we have a negative theology consisting in denials of the idolatrous titles that Rome has bestowed upon her. But we also have a positive theology based upon the testimony of Scripture alone. So... Who is this Mary? First of all, let's consider our denials against Rome. So, in Catholicism, there are four official dogmas concerning Mary. Now, I'm using the word dogma here on purpose. A dogma is different from a doctrine. Now, a doctrine is something that you can more or less do with or without. So, whether you believe in particular redemption or general redemption, whether Jesus died for everyone to make salvation possible, or if he died just for the elect— in really accomplishing a redemption, we would say that question really, really matters, but that's not the kind of thing where it makes you a Christian or a non-Christian. Or whether you believe in believer's baptism versus infant baptism. I think it's an important question, but it doesn't define whether or not you're in the faith. Right. Well, a dogma is something that defines whether or not you're in the faith. If you claim to be a Roman Catholic and you deny one of, the, one of their dogma concerning Mary, they say you are not a Catholic. You are outside the faith. You're going against not just the official teachings of the church, but definitional, without which you will not see the Lord, mm. teachings. So there's four of them that have been formally defined by the Catholic magisterium. I'm going to go over five, though, because there's a fifth one that has been seriously considered. Even by our current pope, it's been seriously considered. It's not been defined. I think it one day will be defined, but... We'll talk about that later. So number one, we Protestants deny that Mary is immaculately conceived. Right. Have you all ever heard of the immaculate conception? I've heard of that a bunch of times, and I always thought it referred to the birth of Jesus, that he was born without sin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and therefore was able to live a perfectly righteous life. That's what I always thought. That's not what it is. If that's what you think it is, yeah, Jesus was immaculately conceived, but this is talking about actually the birth of Mary, that she was born without the stain of original sin. In considering this, this is kind of their explanation to the question, well, how was Jesus able to be born without sin? Well, because Mary's without sin. Okay, well, it just takes it kind of back a step. How was Mary born without sin? Was her mom? What about her mom? Well, at, at some point, you're going to go all the back to 
the first woman Eve. So I think it necessarily causes an infinite regression. It's also extra biblical. You're not going to find any verses that talk about it. But my biggest beef with it is it undermines the work of the Holy Spirit in the incarnation. Jesus' birth was miraculous. He was born without sin because his father was God and not Joseph. Amen. Second of all, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now I'll talk a little bit about the history of this because there are some differences even among Protestants here. So you've got the Lutheran view, the Catholic view, and the Reformed view. And if you were to read some of the early Reformers, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, men like that, Henry Bullinger, they actually held to a more Lutheran position on this than a modern Reformed position. The modern Reformed position, for the most part, is just an outright denial. Mary wasn't a virgin her whole life. Uh, Some people believe she had other kids. Um, I believe that she was not a virgin her whole life. And I would put this basic upon two arguments. First of all, the virginity of Mary, the perpetual virginity, that she remained a virgin her entire life, even after the birth of Jesus, it's rooted somewhat in a poor view of sex. As if someone is more pure and more chaste and more holy if they never have intercourse, even within the lawful bounds of marriage. And second of all, I think this view necessarily implies that Mary neglected her marital duties towards Joseph. So that's kind of the modern reform view. That's the view I hold to. There's also the Lutheran view, which is to say, look, after Mary gave birth to Jesus, she, ethically speaking, she, she never had sex. She remained a virgin her whole life. Okay, maybe they see some of like the virtue in that. But the Roman Catholic view is actually different from even that. They would say before during and after the birth of Jesus, Mary retained her uh, virginity. Okay, so before makes sense. Definitely hold to that. After, okay, that makes sense ethically. During, what does that mean? Well, it's a statement about the physical integrity of her virginity. Something that scientifically would be impossible for a woman to give birth without losing that. They would say she maintained that. When you think about how that's possible, there becomes some serious problems in that. Was Jesus fully human? Did he phase out of the womb? What does that mean? I think he was born in like manner as us, right. in every way like us, except with sin. Right. So that's a little bit about the virginity of Mary. Third of all, their third dogma is Mary's assumption into heaven. Again, I, I don't even know what verse they would maybe twist or even what good and necessary consequence they would use. I believe their argument is just purely based upon tradition, and that it's fitting. You know, Jesus went his life without sin and was assumed into heaven. Maybe Mary too. Um, Well, the thing is, again, this undermines the role of Jesus. Jesus was assumed into heaven because he was not just the sinless Savior, but because he had a role to play in heaven. And some Catholics would go that far and say, yeah, Mary's the queen of heaven. She has a very important role in intercession. No, she doesn't. There is one mediator between God and man. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It undermines Jesus' own rising up into heaven. Dogma number four. Now this one, we don't outright deny. I would say we distinguish. We distinguish when we say that Mary is the mother of God. Now, when I say we distinguish, we have to remember what theological, historical context did this come in. And this came into play during the Council 
of Ephesus in the 5th century. And this was actually in response to certain heresies that were going on at the time. There are people who were saying, look, Jesus is really two persons. He's got a human nature and divine nature, and therefore he's got a human person and a divine person. So they would see, I think that completely undermines the unity of who Jesus is. He's one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully divine and fully human. And so to use this phrase, Jesus is God, well, there were certain people that were saying, yes, Jesus is God, but he wasn't God in Mary's womb. He became God maybe at his birth. The argument more or less goes like this from an orthodox perspective is Jesus is God. Check. Mary is the mother of Jesus. Check. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. Strictly logically speaking, this is valid. Jesus is God. He's fully God, fully man. And Mary was the mother of Jesus. Now, that's not to say, and Catholics would deny this as well, this isn't to say Mary gave birth to the essence of God as if you know she had some role in creating God. Not at all. However, this has been a huge point that Catholics push in order to bring about Mary's the mother of God, therefore she's worthy of our worship. How can you give birth to God and not be worthy of some level of veneration? Because she's not God. She's been blessed by God to be a very important chosen vessel, but that doesn't mean that she's worthy of our veneration. All four of these dogmas, I think, are leading to one place, and this is the fifth dogma that's been, again, seriously considered. And if you're a Catholic and Malethus, they say, it's fine, it's a point of indifference. I think it's high blasphemy. I think it's a denial of the gospel. And I think uh, one day Rome will complete uh, their denials of Christ. I think in many ways it already has. But the fifth dogma is we deny Mary as co-redemptrix or co-redeemer alongside Christ. So when they look at a passage like what we just read today, they would say, look, Mary's there. She's grieving. She's suffering alongside Christ. She is redeeming us alongside Jesus. She ought to be praised for giving us salvation just as her son is. This is anti-gospel. Right. Again, I, I think it's all leading to the same place. Why is Mary assumed into heaven? Why is she immaculately conceived? Why is she perpetually virgin? Well, I think it's all to point that she has a major role to play in their understanding of salvation, which Jesus is the one who came to seek and save Amen. those who are lost, not her. Mm-hmm. So we also have a positive theology. So now that we've covered who Mary is not, let's look at who she is. Mary is like us. She was a descendant of Adam. She's of the same human nature. She was born in sin, and she's in need of a Savior. She was born again by the Spirit of God. She had the gift of faith, and she is somebody who's not just, you know, I admit she's a Christian, but I I think she's in a sort of situation where She's one of those heroes of the faith where her faith needs to be emulated. She needs to be praised for her wonderful testimony within the word of God. She was the mother of Jesus. Now, some people, you know, want to say, well, you can only say she's the mother of God because saying mother of Jesus, that undermines the ecumenical council. I mean, it says in verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. She was visited 
by the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel, the angel, said, look, you're going to give birth, and you're going to give birth to the Savior. His name shall be called Jesus. When Mary is the mother of Jesus, she nursed him. She knew him from his earliest days. Standing at the cross of Jesus, she knew him from his birth, really the conception, to his death. So she was the only one who knew Jesus for the 33 years of his life. The disciples who knew him you know, most closely, they knew him for three years. So she knew him 11 times as long as that. When Jesus was 12, we have another story where Mary was visiting Jerusalem and she had forgotten him. She effectively lost him for a couple of days and she went back to search for him. And three days later, to find him, she found him speaking with one of the great religious doctors. And Luke chapter 2 recalls the story for us. Uh, Luke chapter 2 says, And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee worrying. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. She kept those sayings in her heart. From his youngest years, she knew what Jesus was about. She knew that there was something different about him. And that there was a key role that he had to play in saving not just the world, but saving her own soul personally. And Mary would indeed see Jesus grow for the next 18 years in fulfillment of this verse. We also believe that Mary is blessed. There's a sense in which we have to affirm that. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 48, reads, This is Mary speaking. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. So Mary is blessed. Mary is extremely blessed because she got to carry Jesus, the Savior of the world. She was that elect vessel to carry our Lord. And I'm of the persuasion she's the greatest woman of faith to ever live. And her faith, I think, is not just in carrying Jesus and giving birth to him and not just raising him, but also most clearly demonstrated at the cross. So let's look here, secondly, of how Mary sees Jesus. Jesus says unto her, Woman, behold thy son. Now when Jesus addresses her as, you know, it's his mother, but he says to her, Woman. Now, I want to be very clear, this is not a pejorative, this is not a put-down, um, and it's really unnatural to see this as such in this context, especially considering the character of Jesus. Jesus is on the cross, bearing the weight of the world, and he's not going to speak harsh words. In the Greek, the word here for woman is in the vocative case, which means that she's being addressed honorably. This word could also therefore also be accurately translated or rendered as dear woman or O woman. Jesus is addressing her sweetly, even as he proceeds to deal with her sweetly. 
And he's dealing her with her here, not merely simply as his mom, but as a human being, as somebody who he's bringing to the cross. So he addresses her, and he says to her, Behold thy son. Now this holds here a double meaning. And this meaning is to be distinguished, but not fully separated. Um, in the same sense that we would distinguish, you know, Jesus is God, Jesus is man, but we don't radically separate the two. We say there's union in the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. So here, too, there's two meanings to be distinguished and not separated. First, he addresses her, behold thy son, in the parent-child dynamic, and secondly, <laughs> in the creature-creator dynamic. And so to really understand the twofold thrust of behold thy son, let's briefly enter into the complex of Mary's emotions. So first of all, we have the grief of a mother. You know, there's no other way to put it. She can't pretend that she's not a mother to this man for 33 years old. I mean, that's older than I am. I'm 30 years old. 33 years old, I mean, I know that for myself, if my mother saw me dying or being tortured or about to die, it would be the kind of thing that would absolutely destroy her. I think you could say that for any loving mother. What mother would not be devastated knowing their son's going to die? For 33 years, he never sinned, never spoke harshly to her, never did anything but love with a perfect love. So she witnessed a physical terror coming upon her son on that cross. A cross was an instrument designed to be as maximally painful as possible. You also had the terrors of the cross by virtue of Jesus faced not just physical pain and torture, but he also faced the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. And he made that very clear that he was to take upon himself the sins of the world. And by taking upon himself the sins of the world, that means he would also take upon himself the wrath of God that was coming for his church in hell. So he was on that cross bearing not just pain, but the wrath of God. The Father himself took his face away. The Bible says that it pleased the Lord to crush him. It was a terrifying thing. Jesus so dreaded the cross that he uh, sweated drops of blood asking, Lord, if there's any, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the answer to that prayer was no, there is no other way. The cross is absolutely necessary. Jesus gave himself up willingly. He submitted to the Father in this respect. I think Mary also felt perhaps a godly sense of pride. Now, you know, we always talk about pride being a sin, but there's also a sense in which a father's going to love their child if it's like, I saw my son doing the right thing in a hard situation. It's, you know, that's my boy sort of thing. I think Mary felt that kind of godly pride. Jesus is hanging up on that cross. He's being tortured. He's enduring the pain of the cross, nails in his head. He's suffocating. And he set out to do exactly what he set out to do. For 33 years, his mission in life is being accomplished. He's hanging there. Simeon was right when he spoke to Mary years ago. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy soul also. Mary never forget, forgot the sayings of Jesus. She always kept these things in her heart. 
And when she beheld him at the cross, and he reminded her, woman, look at me, behold thy son. She knew that this is him. This is the redeemer of Israel. This is the Lord. This is the savior of my soul. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The same can be said to you. Do you behold Jesus? Will you behold thy son? Will you look to him and be saved? Do you see how he loved you? Do you see him up on that cross? How does Jesus comfort his grieving mother? He says, behold thy son. It's not, it's not look away. It's not mom go home. It's not dwell on better things. It's not well, give it a few days and get over it. It's look to Jesus. And there's no better advice he could have given for that. He came to die. I think the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one, gives us great comfort. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. There's great comfort in looking to Jesus. You know, Anytime we have a death of a loved one, what is the answer? What, what comfort can we find? What's, what's the pastoral advice when, you give, when you're talking to somebody who's grieving? Jesus. Where else can you turn? Jesus is the answer. He suffered, he bled, and died. He has the whole world in his hands. He has ordained all things that have come to pass. And in his wisdom and in his power and in his glory, he ordained that the best thing for him to do was to go to that cross, to suffer and to die for a sinner like you. Amen. You don't deserve it, but God is good. He's never regretted it. And he bids you even now, look to him. But there's even greater comfort still. Look thirdly at how Jesus sees Mary. Now, just as Mary sees Jesus through two relationships, Jesus likewise sees Mary through two relationships. The God-woman relationship and also the son-mother relationship. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to fulfill all righteousness. He lived the perfect life in order to die the perfect death. And in every way, he fulfilled the righteous demands of his father. He perfectly, in every respect, without exception, he kept the law of God. And yet, heading to the cross, there is something that was unfulfilled. There is one thing that was unfulfilled. The way I know this is the following verse. Verse 28. I'm just going to read the first half of it. After this, Jesus, knowing that, this, uh, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now, referring to the first half of this verse, all things were now accomplished. All things were not now accomplished before he had said, verse 27, before he had said and had verse 27 fulfilled, not all things were accomplished. We find on the cross that when he says, Behold thy mother, he is fulfilling the fifth commandment. 
Amen. Children, do you know what the fifth commandment is? Do you remember? Can you think? It's honor your father and your mother. When Jesus was on the cross, he was honoring his mother. He didn't forget her. Jesus wasn't so religious and so pious and so distracted with his most important heavenly duties that he used as an excuse to neglect his earthly duties. But rather on the cross, we see Jesus' true humanity and his care for his mother. Now, at this point in the story, in order for this to kind of make sense, we kind of have to presuppose that Joseph is no longer in the picture. Perhaps he passed away. But whatever it is, Mary likely would have been left destitute. Jesus was probably looking after her, providing for her. And without her son, she might have to fend for herself. And being a single woman who's probably in her 50s at this point, that's a real tough life. Jesus doesn't want that to be the case. He wants her to be provided for. And so he bids John, the disciple whom he loved, behold thy mother. John's response, which I believe Jesus was well pleased with, was that very hour that disciple took her into his own home. This was Jesus' mother. He asked me to look after her. The rest of my life I will be protecting her. She'll be as if she was part of my family. When I was in seminary, I had uh, an assignment from a missions professor, and he told me, or he told the class, you have to go and you have to interview some people who grew up in a non-Christian country and are still professing non-Christians. You just need to ask them a couple questions about what they think about American culture and their understanding of what Christianity is and stuff like that. I didn't really know where to go, so the professor was like, you should go to a mosque. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm going to do that. So, <laughs> so I went to two different mosques in town, spoke to some of the Muslims, um, and one of the questions we had to ask is, what's the most shocking thing about American culture? You know, I'm going into a mosque, so I'm thinking that they're going to say something about the way women dress or the, something about, you know, y'all don't pray to Muhammad or something like that. Uh, I know they don't pray to Muhammad, but uh, their answer Almost everybody said the same thing. Not even like conspiring with each other. It was just, y'all hate your old people. When they get old and they can't work anymore, y'all just see them as useless. Y'all see them as burdens. And y'all just put them in a nursing home and then you never visit them. They said in our countries, like grandpa gets too old. Well, now he doesn't live on his own. Now he lives with us. And we start taking care of him medically. And we do everything we can until basically he dies. And they're like, y'all hate your old people. Y'all don't respect your parents at all. And I'm like, ow. <laughs> I mean, he, I, it's hard to argue with that. I think that they were right. Um, one of my heroes of the faith is Ulrich Zwingli. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that name, but he was, if Martin Luther was the German reformer, Zwingli was the Swiss reformer. They lived at the same time. They agreed on almost everything with regards to the gospel and the reformation of the church. Zwingli died on the battlefield. He died fighting for Protestantism. Luther died of old age, but Zwingli, he died with a battle axe in his hand, more or less. Um, the story was he saw a fellow soldier had gotten fatally wounded, and in that man's last minutes, he decided to kneel by him and pray with him as he was going to enter glory. And he was taken advantage of in those moments. He was stabbed, and basically the Catholics did the same thing, wanted to take advantage of him in his last moments. You know, 
recant before you die and become a Catholic. And he did not pass into glory. He left behind a wife and kids. His successor in Zurich, Switzerland, Henry Bullinger, said, you're part of my household now. You know, your, your husband, your father, he died as a man of God. We're going to do the right thing. Kids, we want you to grow up to be like Jesus. We want you to love as Jesus loved. We want you to act righteously in the way that Jesus was righteous. We want you to look to him with faith. And one of the biggest things you can do to be like Jesus is to love and honor your mother and father. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He was remembering his mom. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just die generally. Jesus took names to the cross. Mm-hmm. He took you to the cross. Amen. He took Jackson to the cross. He took Abigail to the cross. He took Alan to the cross. He took names to the cross. He did not die generally. And two individuals are named in this text. And asking Mary to behold thy son, he is, and by calling John the disciple whom he loved, he is claiming that he is up yeah. there on the cross specifically for them. The cross was deeply and intimately personal. Amen. Amen. And I stand before you today presenting to you the Amen. Lord of glory in his passion. Amen. He loved his church so much. And again, I want to make this personal. He loves this church, Christ's fellowship, so much that he died for this church. He died for you. And he resurrected for you, Amen. for the forgiveness of your sins. And if there's anybody here who does not know that their sins are forgiven and have not tasted the first fruits of everlasting life, I want you to know, first of all, Jesus is not still up on that cross. Amen. Amen. That's one of the things that when churches began to reform, they no longer had crucifixes anymore. They took Jesus off that cross. They said, Jesus is no longer on that cross. He's risen from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of heaven. And what I want you to know is Jesus is no longer on that cross, and yet his hands are still just as outstretched. Amen. He's still as welcoming. He still says, come to me, look to me for the forgiveness of sins. And he is pleading with you. Again, it's not just this cold, impersonal thing, but he knows who you are. He's truly God. He knows all things. He's pleading with you. Turn from your sin and look to him. Come to him. Neglect him not. And I understand most of you here today are Christians. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We know who he is and what he has done. And so the application is really simple. Behold thy son. Behold thy Lord. Marvel at how he loves you. Amen. With an everlasting love. With a love that was willing to go through the terrors of hell. The very wrath of God itself. That's how much He loved the world. Let us never forget it. I want to end with the words of Psalm 107, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our good God and Savior, Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, you could give us no greater gift in life. Lord, you've given us health. 
You've given us food. You've given us children. But Lord, you've given us the greatest gift of all. You've given us yourself. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you not only, Lord, is he uh, away in heaven uh, doing all things, but Lord, we thank you that you've also sent us your Holy Spirit who is near to us, who is within us, who convicts us of sin and reminds us of how good Jesus Christ is. He is good. He is Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that he bore the sins, our sins, upon that cross. Lord, let us never forget with what love he hath loved us. So help us, Lord, today to remember what great a salvation you've brought to us. Help us to love. Help us to sing. Help us to praise the Savior's name. And help us to grow closer to you. Increase our faith. And let us never forget how good you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.